Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Hey, this is Tracy Syed, and I play Brenda. Hi, this is Michelle Agresti, and I play Bia. All of us here at Arden would like to thank you so much for listening. We're so glad you found our show. What helps more people find our show are your reviews on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews, the more new listeners we can reach. But don't do it just for us. For every new review we get between now and October 31st, we will donate a dollar to RAIN, the anti-sexual violence organization. Help us find new listeners, help those poor, ardenless souls find us, and help an organization doing vital work. A win-win-win. Arden is sponsored by Wayface Industries. If Wayface had a face, it would be smiling. If Wayface had a way, it would be good. Wayface Industries. The good people. Last time on Arden. Last time on Arden. That can't be right. Pamela, is this on the previously on Arden clip? That's what the file's called. But hold on, let me just check something. Last time on Arden. It's, um, I'll fix it. Hey, I have a radio question. I bet you do. Did an intern label the clip of you saying previously on Arden as previously on Arden, and then you played that thinking it was the clip summarizing the previous episodes? No, Bentley, I don't have an intern on this show. One or more radio professionals did this. The same radio professionals that will surely edit this out. One and the same, my friend. This is not an auspicious start to this episode. It's not. No. It's perfect. You're very quick to disagree with me. Have you noticed that? No, I'm not. This is perfect because... Hold on. Hello! Welcome to Arden. This week, things get a bit spooky. As we discuss the Capsum Case Curse. Should we have lit candles for this? Please imagine that we're doing the show in a gothic mansion surrounded by candles. You all know the story of Julie Capsum's tragic end. She disappeared on a dark, snowy night in the dead of winter. Not a trace of her left besides her broken-down car with a man's torso in the trunk. And also all the blood. Don't forget the blood. Yet, we still haven't spoken of the way the horror of that night seeped into every living soul who touched the case. The closer they were, the worse they died. Why are you talking like that? Uh, I'm having some fun with the show. People are dead, Bia. You're turning it into a spectacle. Really? Five episodes into the true crime show you co-host, and you ask why it's such a spectacle? As if that's not what you've made at the last four installments? I thought you liked this bit. It's pretty crass is all. You're Miss Crass. I'm not crass. I have panache. This is just tacky. Normally I would agree. But the curse is different. Besides, I get to make fun of the curse. I'm part of the curse. Were you murdered in a highly unexplained circumstances eight years ago, and now you're a ghost haunting me? The Capsum Case Curse is an urban legend that everyone involved in Julie Capsum's disappearance will meet a horrible end. Like that horror movie Julie did in 2001, where everyone who looked at that evil horse died. That's not a real movie. Look up my fiend Flicka. Straight to DVD. I wouldn't recommend it, especially if you're scared of horses. 
scared of horses. Is that a thing? Of course it's a thing. Why would it not be a thing? Just so you know, if you see a horse where it shouldn't be, be aware. Anyway, the curse has been credited for the deaths of Ralph's best friend, Mark Bolt, Julie's cousin, Tyrell Capsum, Julie's mother, Kathleen Weir Capsum, and true crime author Dietrich Barnes, who died right before the release of his book about the Capsum case and its consequent curse. That's not to mention Ralph's parents getting hounded out of town and renowned reporter Sasha Dews losing a toe to frostbite when she camped out in the North Pacific forest trying to trace Julie's steps during ABC's five-year anniversary coverage. Now consider that I was the first reporter on the case and you were one of the first cops on the case. We're both in it. The curse could come for either of us. You think we're both cursed? I think that if I die in a weird way in the next five years, it will be added to the Wikipedia page about the Capsum case curse, whether I believe in it or not. So I might as well lean in. I choose to be in on the joke. Plus, it is pretty weird. Like, cosmically weird. Ooh, I thought of another curse victim. Yeah? My truck! Oh, for God. On December 25th, 2007, somewhere around 11 p.m., Julie Capsum ran her car off the road and into a tree in the middle of Northern California's most desolate stretch of major highway, halfway between Eureka and Crescent City, California. One witness saw her pacing outside her car, but by the time the police arrived, she had vanished. While dogs picked up her scent headed into the trees, it disappeared in the middle of a forest clearing. What happened to Julie that Christmas night? How could someone that well-known vanish in the United States in the 2000s? And why has this case haunted us ever since? Each week, we'll explore a different part of the story and see if we can't untangle this web and find the answers. Join us, won't you, as we unravel the mystery on Arden. On December 25th, 2007, some... Sorry about that. I need a better name for that file than ardenstuff.mp3. Welcome back, loyal fans! Let's take a moment and talk about rational thought. Dear Lord. Eee, we agreed. Just take it away, Detective Bentley. All right. I have always made it a policy to have an open mind about the world around us. Some ignorant people might even accuse me of having too open a mind. And on that point, quickly while I have the floor. There are an estimated one trillion planets in the Milky Way alone. Believing Earth is the only planet out of the one trillion to have life is far more naive and ignorant assumption. Especially considering how many moons in our solar system. Pamela's given me the wrap it up motion. Even though I was led to believe this was an educational program. Maybe you can continue this on Dr. LaRoe's show at 1am. I happen to be a big fan of Dr. LaRoe and his work. Of course you are. Do you have any criticisms of Calls from the Void, which is on your same station? I respect the work of everyone here on Wayface Radio. Wayface Radio offers quality programming at all hours. See, that's the reasonable casely I know and work with. Work with is a stretch. That was a legit offer on Dr. LaRoe's show. Actually, you know, we can talk about this off air. We don't need to get into this now. Cool beans. Back to the difference between an open mind and a silly theory. Ugh. To quote history's greatest detective, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Sherlock Holmes isn't a real person, don't. He was based on a real person, Joseph Bell, who was a surgeon, not a detective. Surgeons can be detectives. Haven't you ever seen House? You know I have! As I was saying, a belief in the potential of alien life is based on scientific deduction. A belief in curses, on the other hand, is based on superstition and magic, which is not real. It's the impossible versus the improbable. Okay, if you say so. Did you just throw salt over your shoulder? Maybe. Maybe not. It's a radio podcast. I might have done anything. I thought. I was right here. You don't seem like a very credible source. You want to talk about credible sources? Always. Please only talk to me about credible sources. It makes my journalistic heartbeat faster. You listed Dietrich Barnes, acclaimed nonfiction writer, on your list. 
No one gets your air quotes around acclaimed, and I didn't use that word. Dietrich Barnes air quote acclaimed and air quotes nonfiction writer and his book Capsum Lose Some. It's a bad title. It's a bad book. Apologies for speaking ill of the dead, but his theory that Julie switched with a double is it's bad. That's not the point, though. The curse isn't people who solved the case. It's people close to the case. And he wrote 316 completely unsourced, terribly inaccurate pages on this case. Ugh, was the book really that long? Yes, if you include the foreword. God, that foreword. I've had serious relationships that were shorter than that foreword. I bet. Huh. You know Dietrich Barnes wrote 36 true crime books? He churned them out. And he was in his late 80s. There's nothing suspicious about him dying writing any particular book on any particular case. Okay, but he didn't die because he was 87. He died because he was trampled by a horse. Like in that movie where everyone who saw the evil horse died. That only seems like a coincidence because you brought up murder horses first. Why are you trying to take the fun out of this curse? You're the one who keeps saying the curse is going to kill me. Kill us. I'm part of it. Well, I wouldn't want to be part of any curse that would take me as a member. Believe it or not, that curse is coming for you. Oh. Oh, no. Brenda, what have you done? What? There was ranch on this mic before I came in here. What? Uh, Pamela? Can we get a new mic? I just realized something horrible. You brought up the double theory. No. I said the double theory is bad. You said it, though. Now we have to explain it for the audience. The double theory is, as the title suggests, the theory that Julie Capsum switched places with a woman who looks a lot like her, and that woman is the one who crashed her car. It's a bad theory. I admit, I did my due diligence and looked into it. Julie was young, thin, and beautiful, and as such, a third of Los Angeles' population looked almost exactly like her. She would have only needed to go to any casting call. Not to mention, Gerald Abernathy didn't know who Julie was when he met her. He wasn't in her film's target demographic. He only described a woman who fit her description. A reasonable case. Can you tell me what the fatal flaw is in the double theory? It doesn't explain anything! Thank you! Yes! If Julie switched places with a double, we would still have a situation where Julie has been missing for 10 years and a different woman who crashed her car and vanished into woods without a trace. It's one of those conspiracy theories that sounds fun and complicated, but doesn't really change anything. Except now we have two missing women to account for. It's a bad theory, and unlike the very legitimate curse, we should take it with a grain of salt. She did it again! Are we allowed to bring food in here or not? You can't talk about the Capsum case curse without talking about the mysterious deaths of Tyrell Capsum and Mark Bolt. It's arguably a more interesting case than Julie's disappearance, but the two tragedies are forever entwined. Here is what we know. Tyrell was Julie's cousin and one of her closest friends. Mark Bolt was Ralph's best friend. Tyrell and Ralph had an altercation regarding Ralph's treatment of Julie days before she disappeared. It's a bit hard to reconstruct what happened after December 5, 2007. Even people close to them who will talk about Ralph and Julie's disappearance don't want to talk about Tyrell and Mark. Vince Volio, who you'll recall gave us so much background on Ralph, doesn't give interviews on Mark. Tyrell's friends and family are closed off behind an iron wall of lawyers. So what's left is hearsay and records of confrontation, of which there were many. It seems to have started mid-January, maybe two weeks after Julie and Ralph disappeared. There were taunts. Tyrell's car was found keyed and covered in graffiti. Some of Tyrell's buddies got in a fight with some of Mark's at least once and were written up for it. What's key, though, is that we can't directly connect either Tyrell or Mark to these fights at all. In fact, prior to the disappearance, hearsay is they got along very well indeed. They played football together, said hi in the cafeteria, hung out at parties. No indication that Mark vandalized Tyrell's car. Maybe they had tried to play peacemaker or just stayed out of it entirely. But tensions must have been boiling on either side. And then, March 8th, 2008. 
There's a report of an abandoned warehouse with blood seeping out from under the door. A lot of it. And when police get there, they find Mark Bolt and Tyrell Capsum. Here is what we don't know. Why Tyrell and Mark were in the warehouse. What they talked about in the warehouse. How they died. And while this is an extension of a previous question, I believe it merits its own consideration. Where is Tyrell's entire stomach? Because it was not in the warehouse when the bodies were found. Did someone take it? No one takes stomachs. They're not a good murder prize. They're not really very stable organs to... Okay, sorry, sorry. I'm in a graveyard. I'm at Mark Bolt's grave right now. The show wanted to pay our respects before we... I'm trying to come up with a tasteful way to say dig up. No. Exhume? No. Uh, uh, Publicly discuss the past of these deceased kids whose tragic fate still haunts... Sorry. Sorry. Can we retape that? I'm at Tyrell Capsum's grave. Casely and I decided to split up for a bit. Why? Oh, I think I intimidate her. Oh, oh, because Tyrell and Mark are buried in different cemeteries. Apparently the captains are so rich they have preferential postmortem real estate. Me, I'm a when-you're-gone-you're-gone gal. The cemetery is very swanky, though. And Tyrell got a very impressive headstone. Tyrell Loman Capsum. Did you know Tyrell was an Irish name? I looked it up. There's a fountain, too. That's a... That's something. The Capsums were a very close family, and when Tyrell died, it was an unimaginable tragedy on top of an unimaginable tragedy. Since there was no body to bury Julie, but no longer much hope of finding her, Mr. Capsum poured a lot of money into his nephew's funeral. Being able to bury him in the family plot hopefully gave them some small sense of closure. But I'm sure Brenda is covering that on her end. By contrast, the Bolts had a very small, quiet funeral. They could barely afford to send Mark to college, and his loans were taken out in his name. His grave bears the simple plaque, loving son and brother. The true lasting testament to Mark is that he is remembered by his friends as incredibly loyal and lighthearted. It's still baffling to consider how the young man, beloved by so many, ended up in the ground so young. Mark was kind of a punk, which I say with all due respect to punks. He was always hustling for some extra cash, same as Ralph. Rumor has it, he's the one who got Ralph into dealing. But I met Mark. I interrogated him about Ralph's disappearance. As a cop, you learn to tell the difference between kids who are just a little bit of trouble or trouble trouble. At the time, he seemed like the former. And I still feel for the guy. But looking at the evidence in the warehouse, I have to ask myself if I was wrong. If I was dealing with some kind of maniac or just a desperate kid who missed his friend and went to the wrong place at the wrong time. See, Tyrell had a temper, a big one. There's no arguing that he was often starting fights. If a situation escalated, all signs usually pointed to Tyrell escalating it. Of course, I never met the guy personally, so it's easier to make that judgment, sitting here on the Tyrell Loman Memorial bench listening to the birds sing. It's difficult to be here and reflect on the slaughter we found in that warehouse. Let's take a break. Love. We all want it. You can get love from other people, but other people are finicky, self-involved, and unreliable. You can get it from pets, but dogs, cats, and turtles are so incompetent that you end up having to do everything for them. If only there was a midpoint. Something with the heart of an animal, but the thumbs of an equal. I'm here to tell you there is such a creature. Marmosets. That's right. This pocket-sized primate could be your primate if you order now. What do they do? They climb. They scream. 
They hold your hand and stare at you with their big, beautiful brown eyes. What can't they do? Be boring. Make passive-aggressive comments about your appearance. Correct your grammar. Weighing less than one pound, they're easy to sneak into movies or onto airplanes, so you need never be alone. And you would never want to be alone. Because they're so cute. I would know. I'm looking at one right now. Wait, is there a monkey in here right now? Did you bring a monkey? No, they're marmosets, and I brought a dozen. Don't open that box, Andy. Andy, no! Ah! Ah! My hair! Is it in my hair? It's good. They groom for lice. I keep one on my beard at all times. Marmosets from primate, primate mate. A high energy alternative to crippling loneliness. All doctors universally agree that buying a monkey cures you of not having a monkey. Act fast before they evolve. Brought to you by Wayface Industries. The good people. Did we get all of them? Welcome back, my adoring fans. <laughs> Apologies if my opening act was such a downer. Uh, it's a beautiful day here at Hollywood Forever Cemetery, my favorite Los Angeles area cemetery. I've had my share of adventures here. It's an excellent place for drop-offs, but <laughs> you didn't hear that from me. And, and for pickups, but you also didn't hear that from me. <laughs> so this is a beautiful ceremony going on over the next hill. I wonder if there's a tasteful way to inquire after their florist. A lot of people are afraid of bold reds outside of a romantic context, and honestly, it's cowardly. Rosalind, someone died. Everyone's dying. Keep up. Am I the only one taking this seriously? <sighs> well, if you have to ask. <laughs> what are you so moody about? Don't tell me you're scared of the capsule case curse. I am not. <laughs> I think you're safe. For now. For now? Well, you said it yourself. I mean, the curse is probably to blame for your car going so... <laughs> it's... I'm sorry. It's one thing to say I'm going to die in a freak accident, but you know better than to go after Tommy. Tommy was your car? Truck! Tommy was my truck. And yes, trucks are boys. Cars, curses, gender... <laughs> They're all social constructs, Brenda. It's good news! It means the capsum case curse already got ya! Feels like you guys are in the clear. Knock on wood. Does that work on live trees? You say you hate arguing with Bea, but five minutes away from her and you're fixing to fight me over if trees are or are not wood. I don't hate arguing with Bia. She's the one who... Bia's the only one I know who loves arguing as much as you do. <laughs> you two argue with the drop of a hat about the way the hat was dropped. Why are you mad at Bia? Okay, fine. Bia has been incredibly unprofessional. I would even go so far as to say reprehensible. She sent Andy an email with a bunch of positive fan comments about me and suggested Andy build off my heat and give me my own show now. That sounds very flattering. That's what's so devious about it. She wants me off my show named after my own company so badly that she would say nice things about me. I mean, the nerve. The nerve! She would never say I was well-liked and engaging to my face. If someone's going to say something nice about me, don't go behind my back like a snake. Snakes, known for their civility. You sound like Andy. He showed me the email because he thought I'd be flattered by the high regard Casely holds me in. High regard my left elbow. The grieving family is looking at us again. Let's get out of here. Stop holding up that pen like it's a recorder. The bit's over. It's a pen. Gotcha, boss. Well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> Honestly, I should be the reporter. They're both useless without me. I'm here at the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner's Office to interview Shirley Innes, the medical examiner who performed the autopsy on Mark Bolt. 
Just Mark Bolt. Not only do the capsums have a preferred burial ground, but they have a preferred mortician. That may seem strange, even for the rich and eccentric, but Los Angeles is a very large county, and there are a lot of morticians to choose from. With so many, it makes sense to have a favorite. That sentence sounds weird, doesn't it? Uh, what I mean is that a lot of people die here? I met Dr. Shirley Innes in her office, not in the morgue. She's been with the medical examiner's office for 24 years. She offered me tea, which I declined. She's surprisingly tall at six foot two and has a very cheerful disposition for someone in her line of work. She reminded me of an elementary school teacher, although that might have been the height difference. Let's get to the interview. Dr. Innes, pleasure to meet you. Pleasure's all mine. <laughs> You have an interesting line of work. Oh, it's dead boring. <laughs> oh, forgive me, I make that joke every time. <laughs> it's a good joke. Dr. Innes, how long have you been with the medical examiner's office? 24 years. That's very impressive. Oh, nothing to it. You just don't die. <laughs> oh, oh, believe me, I've seen everything. The Capsum Bolt case. Would you characterize that as one of the most unusual cases you've seen? It was memorable, I'll say that. Now, I know you know this beer, but for the listeners at home, I'd like to clarify everything that I'm going to say is public record. The case has technically been closed. I don't want you thinking M.E.s go around blabbing the details of all deaths to any nosy Nelson who pops up. <laughs> so, Mark Bolt... Height, 71 inches, 5 foot 11, weight 188 pounds by estimation before death. Uh, time of death estimated at 1.30 a.m. The decedent brought in missing most of his blood. Can you speak to the blood loss? A likely loss through his severed arm. Right arm was removed at the shoulder joint by a sharp, jagged object. You suspect the jagged object could be the chainsaw that was found at the scene? Yes, though if it wasn't for the blood on the chainsaw, I wouldn't be able to tell for sure. Ty, uh, excuse me, whoever removed the arm was not experienced with the tool and made multiple careless cuts. Difficult to identify. So you believe someone else was there? I know there were only two human samples of DNA found, and I know there were two dead bodies. My opinions on how the night played out are irrelevant. So the decedent, all his natural teeth, but he had five fillings. Otherwise strong bone density. Decedent had a broken femur, multiple broken ribs, and a fractured skull. Fractured skull appears to have been caused by hitting the pavement of the warehouse floor. Broken ribs caused by a blunt force. Broken femur occurred after death. Appears to have been Oh, for lack of a better word, snapped. The decedent's stomach was perfectly intact. Body appeared well-nourished and muscular. Toxicology report found a blood alcohol level of 0.32%, which is high. Toxicology and lungs also indicate frequent marijuana use. If you were to speculate... Oh, I shouldn't speculate. Well, if I were to speculate... I would say that Mark got drunk, got into, and then lost a physical fight when a chainsaw sawed off his arm, causing him to die of blood loss. But you forget the fractured skull. He would have lost the arm, tried to get up, and then have his head slammed at that moment in your hypothetical. Any of Tyrell's DNA found on Mark? Some hair from, well, I'm speculating again, hair grabbing. And blood spatter, uh, but, but there's no way to know if the blood was before or after Mark passed. You have been incredibly helpful. I'm at the coroner's office to speak with the medical examiner who examined Tyrell Capsum's body, Dr. Francis Padilla. He's been a coroner for 16 years. You must have some wild stories, huh, Francis? I wouldn't consider laying bodies to rest wild. Of course. Finally, someone who treats the dead with some respect. Do you recall the Tyrell Capsum case? Quite well. 
What can you tell us about it? Out of respect for both the Capsum and Bolt families, I would also like to decline to speculate on the case or further sensationalize the tragic deaths of two young men. Of course. Have a pleasant evening. Wait, was that it? Are you seriously not going to speak with me? I did speak with you. That was it. Why did you even agree to meet with me? You barged in here, as I recall. And I was worried that if I did not, you would simply say the coroner would not speak with me but, and then put words in my mouth. Miss Bentley, I respect the pursuit of truth. I consider my own profession to be part of that pursuit. However, I also believe that this case is over, and digging it back up is not going to find a single thing that benefits the victims of this incident. Only the onlookers... Very well said. I understand your point of view, and I respect your stance. But you've got to tell me what happened to that stomach. Please leave my office. I can just look this up. No one is stopping you, ma'am. Thanks to the good people of Reddit, I was able to locate a copy of the original autopsy report. Thank you, Reddit. Please stop speculating on what's going on in my personal dating life. I love you guys, but it's creepy. So... Tyrell Capsum, deceased, weight inconclusive due to the missing goddamn stomach. Toxicology, trace amounts of ecstasy and Adderall, that's interesting. Eyes have severe corneal damage, huh. Rosalind, ask me how many bones he broke. How broke were they? I said how many. One, he had a fractured pinky. Rest of him, totally fine. I mean... That's not true. He was missing a stomach and almost all of his blood. But all his other bones, good and accounted for. Except for the front tooth that he was missing and replaced with a crown years ago. Lacrosse accident, I imagine. Is that in the report? Only the missing tooth. I knew the lacrosse thing already. Mm. What about the raccoon blood? I'm so glad you asked. This report has no mention of the raccoon blood. Listeners... Part of the reason police still have not been able to figure out what exactly happened that night is because a lot of forensic evidence was contaminated by raccoon blood. Some raccoons got into a fight and got blood all over the human blood, and it just made the whole situation very messy. Only one injured raccoon found, and he was not a very helpful witness. Any raccoon bites on the body? Nothing deadly. Hard to catch rabies after you die. <laughs> I would watch that zombie movie. I swear. I'm going to have a nightmare tonight about horses and zombie rabies. But the incredibly gruesome and violent murders side right off you. The scariest thing about those deaths is the not knowing. <laughs> oh, do you at least feel like you understand the case more now? Absolutely not. Want another round? <laughs> no. I get the feeling you're going to need me to drive you home. And that's what makes you the world's greatest assistant. Hello, it's me, the world's greatest assistant. I found someone you might like to meet. What? Over there, corner booth. Oh, okay. Hello, Brenda Bentley. How'd you know? I've listened to the show. Ah, fan. You sent him one of those letters about how much you love me? I haven't. Would you like me to? Oh, it's fine. I don't even read them, really. Tell Brenda what you do. I'm a CSI with the LAPD. Of course. I was one of the CSIs who arrived on the scene of the Bolt Capsum warehouse deaths. Oh my god. That's incredible. You're not going to believe this, but that's what I've been investigating today. Rosalind, isn't this just, like, the craziest coincidence? I looked into who worked that case and then called all of them asking if anyone would be willing to give you an interview today. And you found this lovely crime scene investigation professional to speak with me on the record at this bar? Yes. Rosalind, best assistant in the history of the world. Can you get me a coffee? Okay, hold this. Why are you handing me your pen? It's a recorder. It's on. Motherfucker. Um, not totally on record. I I'd like to remain anonymous. But I'm legit. I, I can show you my ID. Listeners, <clears throat> listeners, let the record show that I examined the ID, and she is indeed legit. Interesting last name, your husband's? Uh, yes. Well, since the bar is playing Simpsons reruns, how about I call you Marge? Perfect. 
Uh, so the case. On April 26, 2008, around 10 a.m., I was called into a crime scene at the warehouse in San Pedro. The warehouse was shut down in 2003. It used to can tuna, and there was still a faint smell of it hanging around the place. Probably why there didn't seem to be much of a sign of squatters. The lock on the door had been cut through by bolt cutters, but it's unclear if Mark and Tyrell did it or, or they just took advantage of the situation. Mark Bolt was found on his side, his armless side, with his head fractured. Blood and hair at the point of contact on the floor indicates that his head had not been moved once it hit the floor. This, to me, indicates his arm was removed prior to this injury, but that's only one woman's opinion. Tyrell Capson was found face down, so it was only once he was moved that the reality of the missing stomach was realized. He was two yards away from Mark, and they were positioned at a 140-degree angle from each other. Excuse me, um, position makes it sound like a third party arranged them when there was no evidence of that. They fell in a 140-degree angle from each other, a 10 and 3. There was a lot of blood, mostly raccoon blood, Signs that raccoons had been nesting there for a long time. We found some of Tyrell's footprints at the scene. Uh, he was wearing distinctive boots, alligator skin. Cannot stress this enough, no other footprints. You know, I I've read some of the online theories, and they all say the LAPD are idiots for not looking for another person. But we didn't find so much as a hair from another person. We check security cameras in the area. We search for witnesses. We agree it would make more sense, but sometimes Occam's razor isn't the answer. Not to mention, I just don't know how a third party could have done what was done. The whole thing doesn't become less impossible just because a new guy tags in. It's like that double theory in Dietrich Barnes's book. You read Capsum, Lose Some? No, the, the case of the Strangler by the Great Lakes. Rust belt tightened. He was always trying to sell a double theory. I hate his books. <laughs> Me too. But I keep reading them. <laughs> Me too. Anyway, Tyrell, he was clutching a tire iron, which might have broken Mark's leg, but didn't fracture Mark's skull. He was also found near a chainsaw. It was his. It has fingerprints, and there was a credit card receipt for him buying it in 2005 for... Uh, I want to say never finish gazebo, but I might be projecting. It's worth noting that Mark was wearing gloves, uh, so who knows what he did or did not touch. We don't. And what do you believe happened to the stomach? Well, my pet theory is that one of the raccoons sliced his belly open and slept in there for the warmth like a tauntaun. But that doesn't add up because it was spring in Los Angeles and also... Raccoons don't have lightsabers. So you don't know what happened to it? I have no f***ing idea. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'm loving the show. Andy's a hoot. I will pass that along. Good morning, listeners! Good middle of the show to those of you who are listening to the pre-taped show in one sitting. Right. Well, maybe they're listening in the morning. Yeah. Maybe they are. Good morning, all! We got a lot done last night. We make a good team when we don't work together. Tell Rosalind she does great work. Every day. There is one more aspect of the curse I'd like to discuss, though it's far less gory or sensational than the bolt caps and murders. Is it my poor truck? For the last time! I thought we were still doing bits because you were back on the curse. We're not! We'll skip this and start again. Now... Sorry about that. We do not know what happened, but we had a bit of a tech snafu. Back to the program. The final victim of the curse is Mrs. Kathleen Weir Capsum, Julie's mother. In 2011, four years after Julie disappeared, Kathleen Weir Capsum lost her battle with pancreatic cancer. In the immediate aftermath of Julie's disappearance, the Capsums were everywhere. Interviews with every news station, every newspaper. They made public appearances and even took out a national ad asking, Have you seen Julie? 
The media frenzy around the family had only just started to die down when Tyrell Capsum's death put them right back in the public spotlight. That was how the Capsums became shorthand for tragedy. And somewhere amid this dark series of events, the Capsums retreated from the spotlight completely. Kathleen Weir Capsum never made another movie or TV show. She canceled a string of charity appearances in her final months. It was only after her death, indeed after the funeral, that Mr. Robert Capsum released a statement informing the world that Kathleen had cancer. Once one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, Kathleen Weir Capsum chose to die and be put to rest without any fanfare. Perhaps then it's only appropriate that her wish for privacy be respected even now, six years later. Perhaps the only fitting end to this story is the two overly curious reporters, and I use that term loosely, being physically dragged out of the coroner's office in Brentwood. We weren't dragged out. We were escorted out. Trust me, I've been dragged out of my fair share of coroner's offices. Why do you say that like it's a brag? Look, any good detective should have a few lifetime bans from morgues. I've never heard that before. What are you doing in morgues? Living my best life. Well, I wish you were less lively with Dr. Padilla. I bet he does too. Typical coroner can't stand anyone with a pulse. He agreed to speak with us about the inconsistencies in Mrs. Capsum's autopsy. Did he? Yes. He said, please come to my office at once and bring your cohort. And the word cohort didn't project a vibe of hostility? He has a hostile vibe. You saw it. You know what? I have a clip. You have a clip? On my pen. That pen's a recorder? Right. Miss Bentley, Miss Casely, I'm so glad you came. Francis Padilla, it's a pleasure to meet you. It won't be. I've been told you'll recognize Erin Poins, who is here to represent the Capsum family. Hello again. Poins, you son of a... Is this a setup? What's happening? Yesterday I met with Ms. Bentley to discuss the details of Tyrell Capsum's autopsy. Yeah, and yet you didn't. I explained plainly that I was not ethically comfortable divulging those details, and Ms. Bentley left. I believed we understood each other. Why do I feel like I'm about to need my lawyer? Imagine my surprise when I get a Google alert for my name on a site called Red It. Requesting a copy of Dr. Francis Padilla's autopsy reports. Were you going to read on the air unverified autopsy reports given to you by a completely anonymous source regarding a dead teenager? Holy shit, Brenda! Casely, I thought you wanted to crack the case. This is how you crack a case. You get all the information you have and piece it together. I don't want to crack the case. There is no case to crack. She's gone. What my job is, as a journalist, is to find confirmable facts and present them clearly. This is why I didn't want a detective on my radio show. This is not why. You hate me. I don't hate you, you idiot. Don't call me an idiot, you coward. <clears throat> Security is here to escort you out. And please, tell Mr. Wayface that we will be delivering a whole host of legal documents to his office later today. I look forward to it. Too late! I'm leaving! Why do you even have a Google Can I leave? name? This is a what kind of narcissist are, are you? You're going to have to drag me out. Do I need to sign anything? I do not feel like the audience needed to hear that part. Is that so, Miss Con... Confirmable information. Oh, luckily, Andy's lawyers got in touch with the Capsum lawyers. They are not thrilled about us revealing that Tyrell took Adderall, but upon examination of the report Brenda obtained, they had to admit it was a legitimate copy of Dr. Padilla's report, and thus, we are not committing libel. So congrats. Brenda, you have anything to say for yourself? What is there to say? Classic curse. Now you believe in the curse? I believe it's been a rough show. Say it? Fine, I f***ed up all on my own. There's no dumb curse. Are you doing that to mess with me? No. Are you? No. Let's get out of here. <gasps> Sorry about that. Brenda and I are back in the recording booth to take one last shot at ending this episode without major catastrophe. Now who's tempting fate? Well, here's something you'd be happy about. 
I just spoke with Pamela, and it seems that we won't have to work under these conditions much longer. Yeah? And what's that supposed to mean? That the show is falling apart? Is it that hard to work with me? A howler monkey got into the wiring. Okay, lit degree. I guess it does metaphorically feel like a monkey got into the wiring. That's no reason to try to force me out of the show. No, I'm being literal. One of Andy's monkeys got into the wiring of the building and has been breaking our equipment. Marmosets are cute, but they are terrible sound engineers. Oh. Why do you think I'm forcing you out of the show? Andy showed me the files you sent him. I was being nice. Supportive, even. Don't bullshit me. Okay, I won't. But I, I really do believe that you getting your own show will be the best for everyone. I want to be clear about that. I am not trying to take Arden away from you. I'm trying to give you something that's completely yours so I can keep what's mine. No one's getting screwed over. You know, I think for once I'm going to fight the impulse to debate you on this. If we can't work together, then there's really no point in trying to work together. I think I did pretty well reporting on my own yesterday. With Rosalind. Who's coming with me? That's fair. Goodbye, Casely. I'll see you around. Probably in the parking lot because Andy still owns the building. Uh... Is it that shocking to see me be the bigger person for once? Uh, you're right. There's no reason we can't shake hands and leave as colleagues. I'll show myself out. Of course. Well, there you have it, folks. Arden is the latest victim of the Capsum Case Curse. Anyways, so that's the Capsum Case Curse. It's creepy, unexplainable, and incredibly tragic. There is, I admit. Something about the capsums that's larger than life. A grandness that lends itself to the idea that the very forces of the universe work differently around them. But, uh, back in reality, I do also have to acknowledge, for the record, that Bentley was right about a couple of things. But only a couple. First off, Deirdre Barnes, Kathleen Weir Capsum. We know how they died. Their deaths were unexpected, but not supernatural. No death really deserves to be treated as a spectacle or a gimmick. Which brings me to Tyrell and Mark. It's become a ghost story under the sheer weight of the loss. Two young men, loved by their families, loved by their friends, and just starting their lives were suddenly dead. Very certainly dead. A loss that big feels impossible if you really let yourself feel it. So it became something safer. A legend. A myth. A thread on a true crime discussion forum to be picked apart for decades. We'll never know why. But in death, we never know why. Not really. So we got wrapped up in the spectacle. Which wouldn't have happened if the show had been what I'd pitched it in the first place, but... But now it's going to be different. Respectful. Journalistic. Everything I wanted it to be. And that's what's better, right? It's just... The thing about death is... Oh, God. Pamela, can we do a new take? I just realized what a total blowhard I sound like. I mean, a kid lost his whole stomach. On the next Arden, something will happen. We promise you 12 episodes, and that's a Wayface guarantee. And you can trust that because we're good people. So, uh, we'll see you next week. Brought to you by Wayface Industries. The good people. created by Emily Vanderwerf, Christopher Dole, and Sarah Golub. This week's episode was written by those same three people. Our audio engineer is Elizabeth O'Bear. Our editor this week was Bridge Gein. Our cast is 
Michelle Agresti, Tracy Syed, Shannon Estabrook, Charlita Gaston, Benjamin Watts, Lindsay Zana, Robert Fleet, Lindsay Syme, Grant Patrizio, John Rail, Mia Drake. The score is by Christopher Hatfield. The logo is by Dylan Farr. If you're enjoying Arden, or even if you're not and want to drive us from the face of the internet, there are two ways you can do that. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you found it. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc., etc. You can also look for us on Patreon, and you can toss us a couple of bucks there. That will get you access to special, exclusive episodes, other prizes, and all sorts of fun things. Tweet at us, ArdenPod, on Twitter. Our website is ArdenPodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr. You can come and talk to us there if you really want to. And as always, that massive, beautiful matte painting, the biggest in existence, that was painted by Mia Drake. Come back next week for more adventures in Arden. Thank you. Good night. The Fable and Folly Network where fiction producers flourish. I'm Jonathan Pezza, the creator of the Curious Matter Anthology. And I'm betting you've probably never heard anything like our show. adapt stories from authors like Philip K. Dick, Andre Norton, and Robert Block into binaural audio movies that transport you to new worlds. That's it? You're banned for life? What's with Braxians? Please, seriously. I told you downtown was a bad idea. In our brand new season, we explore farther into the what-ifs. You think, in these instances, that somehow simply by believing things are different, they changed. Doubt. I don't follow. I doubt something, and um, they don't change, per se. They cease to ever have been. We delve deeper into the realms of horror and science fiction. Nerves of steel, boys. James, sir, please. There's no need for this. I do not believe that whatever that is can understand you. Robert, I know you are in there somewhere. If you are, we are... I made it through the barrier! It's gone all of me! Available wherever you listen to podcasts. So sit back, grab your popcorn, and listen to the Curious Matter Anthology today.